This morning, folks, this morning I'm, I'm going to say a lot of words. Well, you know, thank you. I appreciate, I appreciate you liking that. Uh, from the very beginning, because I'm going to say a lot of words, from the very beginning I would like to be perfectly clear about the big idea or the main point of, of these many words that I'll be saying. And here it is. This is the big idea. This is the main point. And if in anywhere you get lost in my many words, if perhaps your mind starts to wander and you find your finger suddenly opening up your Facebook app and you're scrolling through your newsfeed, I want you to hear this. The second coming of Jesus Christ gives meaning and hope in the present for those who trust in him. The second coming of Jesus Christ gives meaning and hope in the present for those who trust in him. Now, with all that said, let's continue on with the many words. In the November 28th online edition of The Cut, which is a part of New York Magazine, a letter appeared addressed to Polly, who is the resident advice columnist. The author of this letter, seeking advice from Polly, signed it haunted. And she wrote this, I feel like a ghost. I'm a 35-year-old woman, and I have nothing to show for it. She goes on to describe her life in her letter, a, a life of multiple relocations, of multiple jobs, and of multiple short-term relationships. And this is how she sort of summarizes it. This is what she has to say. For all these years of quick changes and rash decisions, which I once rationalized as adventurous, exploratory, and living an original life, I have nothing to show for it. I have no career milestones and don't care for my line of work all that much anyway, but now it's my lifeline as I only have enough savings to buy a hotel room for two nights. I'm quite frankly exhausted. I'm trying, Polly, I am. I'm dating, I'm working out and working hard, yet I truly feel like a ghost. No one knows who I am or where I've been. I haven't kept a friend, a lover, or foe around long enough to give anyone a chance. What's the point? Now I feel incredibly hollow and foolish. How can I make a future for myself that I can get excited about out of these wasted years? What reserves or identity can I draw from when I feel I've accrued nothing up to this point with my life choices? Having spent the decade of her life seeking her own definition of good and, and defining her purpose, defining her goal, defining her life for herself, haunted by her own words, now feels empty. By her own words, she is now listless. She's hopeless. And I don't think she's alone. There's a pervasive malaise, a pervasive purposelessness, a hopelessness in our culture, in our world today. And now I say this recognizing that that people have plenty of reasons for getting out of bed in the morning, but, but most of these reasons are based upon a personal fulfillment, a goal de determined and defined by yourself, and thus are dependent upon one's ability to perform, to complete them. And Haunted Story, I think, is an example of what can happen, indeed does happen, when rather than having a telos that is external to ourself, we have a purpose that is totally internal. When we lose an external telos, an external purpose, an external goal or meaning, we lose hope and we're stuck 
we're stuck with small goals, living small lives built around self-fulfillment. We're stuck trying, working hard. Now, this hasn't always been the case, but as the 18th century Enlightenment ideals took hold, our world's grip on a telos, a purpose, slipped further and further from its grasp. The Enlightenment placed man at the center of the universe as it firmly seized the Greek philosopher Protagoras' statement, man is the major of all things, and placed the definition of history's goal upon humanity's shoulders. A new awareness in the Enlightenment, a new awareness of the self, of the importance of one's own capacity for reason, one's own faith, one's own convictions, and one's own free moral agency came to full flower, and with it, Telos, or purpose, became something internal within humanity, determined and created and defined by humanity, and thus up to humanity to fulfill. But humanity is not Atlas, and this weight humanity's shoulders cannot bear. The Enlightenment led to modernity, which with its human-centered mechanics was actually anti-religion. If there was a, a religious faith within the modernity, it was to be privatized and internal, Thus, there was no place for an external telos. In the modernity, uh, God was distant from his creation, perhaps the creator and architect, but now less a God of love, miracle, redemption, or historical intervention than a supreme intelligence and first cause, as Richard Tarnas puts it. Eventually, even this far removed and distant God, distant God was removed from the equation altogether, was forgotten altogether, and so Frederick Nietzsche could proclaim, God is dead and it is we who have killed him. Modernity spawns great technological advances, but this belief in man at the center, this belief in man creating the goal or telos of time and history, died in the trenches of France and in the ovens of Auschwitz. Man, as the measure of all things, ultimately leads to death and darkness. And this leaves humanity haunted and hopeless. Ben Shapiro is a writer in Newsweek magazine, he recently commented, America is experiencing a crisis of meaning, and we are filling our need for meaning with whatever we have at our disposal, drugs, ethnic solidarity, political mobbing. The problem here is that while we have a bevy of centrifugal, centrifugal, there we go, centrifugal forces operating on us, we have very few centripetal forces bringing us together. We're now left groping about like haunted, seeking a telos, seeking a purpose, seeking fullness of life, a phrase that Dr. Alan Noble uses in his book, Disruptive Witness. But we're doing that, we're groping about in the darkness without the reality of an external telos given by an external authority. It's no wonder then that we are at our core being haunted and hopeless. We do not know for whom we were made and thus we do not know where we are going. We're left asking the question that Haunted was asking. We're left asking the question that so many of us ask, is this all there is? Is this is what life is for? Is this how it really is going to be? Small lives full of haunted and hopeless meaninglessness. Advent is the season of the church year in which we are confronted with the biblical telos of the universe. What I would say is the real end and purpose of the universe, a telos that is independent of our own reasoning and desires, and Advent is the season that focuses on the telos of the universe because Advent is the season that focuses on eschatology, on the second coming of Jesus.
Eschatology is a wonderful churchy word. It's a theological word that is rich in history and in meaning, and it is one that we should have, quite frankly, in our vocabulary. Within church tradition, eschatology has referred to the doctrine of last things as, as it relates to individuals and to cosmic history. It is concerned with the goal, the telos of the universe, and is concerned with the study and understanding of what the Bible in both the Old and the New Testaments teaches about God's intended purpose, His telos, His goal for His universe. Our reading this morning from Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, that we heard Julia read to us this morning, offers us a vision of the telos, God's end of the universe as it points us toward the second advent of Christ, the crucified, risen, and ascended Messiah. And with this vision, Zephaniah offers meaning and hope here in the present. Zephaniah was a prophet of the Lord during a time of reformation under the reign of King Josiah. After 75 years of decline and corruption, Josiah came to the throne in the kingdom of Judah and began to make political and religious reforms seeking independence politically and obedient worship of Yahweh religiously. Under the reign of Josiah, the people observed the Passover for the first time since the judges. The temple was cleansed of the presence of idols. High places where idolatrous worship occurred were destroyed, and public worship was centralized in Jerusalem. Zephaniah and his prophecies probably influenced Josiah and his advisors in the years leading up to the reforms, because Zephaniah was a prophet who promised God's wrath, proclaiming God's anger with sin, with idolatry of both Judah and the nations, and declared God's intention to judge the world. The first 80% of Zephaniah's short three-chapter book, these prophecies offer a scathing rebuke and a promise of coming judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah and upon all the nations of the earth. A good example, a representative example of the first 80%, 85% of the book is chapter 3, verse 8. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the king of all creation, and as such, he is neither happy with his people, nor is he happy with the nations of his creation, and he promises that he will judge. That's a pretty devastating proclamation through the mouth of Zephaniah, but that is not the end. That is not the telos of God's universe. That is not the purpose. The ultimate end of the universe is revealed, rather, in Zephaniah chapter 3, 9 through 20, which we heard this morning. And if I could summarize what the Lord pronounced through Zephaniah and thus summarize the telos of history in these verses, it would be this. God, the creator and king, will judge and then restore his creation. And in the new heavens and new earth, God will create a people who will worship him out of the many nations in Israel combined. This is actually a very common theme that runs through the Old Testament in his book, The Bible and the Future, Anthony Hockema points out that the day of the Lord is depicted as both a day of judgment and a day of restoration as God brings about a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. 
reflected in passages such as Zephaniah chapter 3, 9 through 20. It's actually directly stated in Isaiah chapter 65, where God declares, For behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. The goal of history, and thus God's intended purpose for his creation, is declared by God himself. The telos of the universe is found in God, in God's rule, and in God's reign, in God's kingdom, and in the worship of God. What we're seeing declared in Zephaniah chapter 3 and in passages such as Isaiah chapter 65 is an unending epoch of renewal, an unending epoch of forgiveness of sins, of God's very presence among his people, and his people made up of forgiven humanity from all the nations. Notice, for example, the proclamations that are made to Gentile nations through Zephaniah in chapter 3, verse 9. For at that time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. And again, in chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my mountain, but I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Just a few verses before, these very people were ones who had been promised judgment and destruction, but now are promised renewal and restoration, even those outside of God's covenant community of Israel. God will restore them. And notice the promises made to the covenant people of Israel in chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Similar to those promises made to the Gentile nations, here is a promise of forgiveness. A promise of restoration and the very presence of God among his people that will result in worship. Here in chapter 3, verses 9 through 20, we have presented the telos, the great end goal of all of history, of all of God's universe, of God's creation. God the creator dwelling amongst all his people in the new heavens and the new earth as the kingdom of God comes in its fullness. This is not just a future tense, wishful thinking hope. Rather, this is also the offering of present meaning. This is an offer of meaning in the present. This is the offer of a telos, a goal with hope for the future. Because you see, God's great purpose for the universe, the picture that we see in Zephaniah chapter 3, is already underway. It is already being accomplished. The promises of the Old Testament are a present tense already reality, even while they are a future tense not yet. While the telos of the universe will ultimately find its fulfillment in the future return of Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, and ascended Messiah, it is already being brought to bear upon God's creation in Jesus Christ, the crucified, risen, and ascended Messiah. Some of the eschatological promises of the Old Testament have already been realized in Jesus while yet some remain to be realized only by Jesus. And so when it comes to the purpose of the universe, Jesus is at the center. Let's look at two expectations found in the Old Testament, two that have been fulfilled in Christ. 
The first is the expectation of a God-sent Redeemer. We can chase the promise of this Redeemer beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and we can follow its development through the Old Testament as this Redeemer becomes connected to the line of David. As this Redeemer is expected to be the prophet, priest, and king par excellence, as this Redeemer is referred to as Messiah, as suffering servant, as the Son of Man. Sometimes in the Old Testament, this Redeemer is depicted as God Himself coming among His people. What we find in the pages of Scripture is that this expectation is and was fulfilled in and by the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, Jesus. Jesus understood himself in this capacity. The apostles proclaimed this as an essential aspect of the gospel. It is the bedrock of Paul's letters, and all of the New Testament is fundamentally built upon this belief that there was an Old Testament expectation of a Messiah, and Jesus is it. As a side note, this is yet one more reason why we cannot unhitch the Old Testament from the New. The second expectation is the one of God's kingdom that is coming. In the Old Testament, in passages such as Zephaniah chapter 3, we can see the promise of God, the Creator, to bring His rule and reign upon all of His creation as the King. And the biblical record declares that this kingdom of God that was coming, that was promised to come, has come, is present, because Jesus has come and is present. John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in his ministry, Jesus proclaimed, if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In his parables and through his actions, Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God, his rule and his reign was dynamically present. Jesus, the Messiah, Jesus, the kingdom bearer, the kingdom bringer. Think again about this passage from Zephaniah. In chapter 3, verse 9, there's a promise made for the purifying of speech, and we can't help but think of the undoing of Babel as the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the church in Acts chapter 2, a gift from the crucified, risen, and ascended Jesus. And as the Acts of the Apostles unfolds the story, the Gentile nations are brought into the church. Or again, in chapter 3, verse 15, there is the promise of forgiveness of sins and removal of judgment as the king of Israel comes into the midst of his people. We can't help but think of Jesus declaring the forgiveness of sins, coming into Jerusalem, proclaimed as king, or reflecting on what Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Or again in chapter 3, verse 17, with its declaration that the Lord is in the midst of his people, we can't help but think, especially at this season of the year, of Jesus being called Emmanuel which means God is with us. Finally, in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, where we see the promise that God would gather to himself the lame and the outcast. Certainly, our minds are called to Jesus in Luke 4, where he declares that he is the one with the Spirit of the Lord upon him to do what? To proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captive, recovering of sight to the blind, 
and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. What we see here is the kingdom, and with it, the telos of the universe is a present reality. It has begun. It has been inaugurated. That is the clear understanding of the pages of the New Testament as the old is understood to the person and ministry of Jesus, the incarnation of the eternal Son of God, the King. We live then in what we can call an already not yet tension. The telos of the universe is present because the kingdom is present, and yet it is still to come in its fullness. Jesus is quite clear about this as he reflects upon the future tense reality of the telos, the kingdom of God, in his teaching and parables. There are, we know, aspects of Old Testament expectation that remain to be completed. The restoration of Israel through its repentance and renewed faithfulness, the final judgment and salvation, and the already mentioned new heavens and the new earth. While we can't answer all the questions regarding eschatology of the Bible, the telos of the universe, namely the question of when, we can absolutely know that Jesus is the center of it all, and thus Jesus is the center of God's point, God's purpose for the universe. Jesus becomes the hinge of history. His crucifixion brings an end to the old. His resurrection inaugurates the new. Jesus becomes then the one who presses history towards its purpose, towards its telos, toward the new heavens and the new earth. Now, what has all this got to do with the haunted and the hopeless? We live in the tension of the in-between, awaiting the second advent of Christ and the fullness of the kingdom to come. And quite frankly, this gives us purpose, it gives us hope here and now. The recognition of the reality, the present reality, the recognition of the reality of the now and future kingdom, the purpose of God, can, take, can serve to take our eyes off ourselves and place them upon the one who is worthy. To extend Ben Shapiro's, or to make reference again to Ben Shapiro's earlier, earlier statement, the kingdom of God in its present and future, can serve as a centripetal force that presses us back together. The already kingdom brings an external authority and with it deliverance from the self and the self's demands. This gives a telos, a purpose that is external to the self. This gives a purpose in the present to live for the glory of God within the kingdom of God in obedience to God. Living in the already while looking for the not yet gives us purpose and it gives us hope. It gives us purpose to live for more, to expect better, and to have faith for the best. In one of her Advent sermons, Fleming Rutledge noted that God's future determines the present rather than the other way around. Living in the present that is determined by the future, lifts our eyes, so to speak. It lifts our eyes toward the promise of a future that is dependent upon God and His work and not upon us and our ability to fulfill that which we say is right and good. The cultivation of this hope requires intention and attention. It requires a vigilance in waiting, a looking for the signs of the second advent of Christ. It requires preparation. The preparation that John the Baptist calls us to, the preparation of repentance. Contemplating the judgment of God upon sin and sinners, 
We repent and we lean into God who is the agent of salvation and offers the telos of the universe. There's true grace here. True grace is God is at work to lead us to himself that we might be forgiven in Jesus' name and experience the presence of the King, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and life in the kingdom of God here and now awaiting its future coming. Living in the tension and moving toward the telos demands nothing less than total commitment. We as individual believers in Jesus have this meaning and purpose. We have this hope. And we as a church then have meaning and purpose and hope. The church in the midst of this tension must have a missional urgency about it. We must recognize that entrance into the kingdom of God is a gift from and the work of the triune God, but that God uses the church to be about the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Folks, we have a job to do living in the present kingdom of God with a future to come. Understanding the eschatological tension of the already not yet reality, we ought to have an intensity about our missional endeavors as we seek those who do not yet know Jesus to come to know Jesus. We at Emmanuel Church have a vision to be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom. But do we operate with a missional urgency, an intensity about it? It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to act as if the reality of the kingdom that is already and not yet is reality. Meaning and purpose bound up in the proclamation of the king who has come and is coming again and hope for that kingdom to come should affect the way we talk to our family, our friends, and our neighbors. It should affect the way we live amongst one another. It should affect the way we go about Alpha Invitation, the way we go about praying for the neighborhoods around us during prayer walks, the way we're involved in missional endeavors. The future and the present give us meaning and purpose And they give us hope. And that should affect the way we live. Advent, the season of eschatology. Advent is the season of telos. Advent is the season of King Jesus. Knowing how the story ends, we ought to be awakened from our slumber and roused from our malaise. There's a purpose to life beyond the accumulation of wealth and the satisfaction of our small desires. There is something, there is someone much greater than ourselves who can fill our emptiness because there is a purpose, a telos that is bound up in Jesus and in his second advent. Let us live then, haunted not by emptiness, but filled with the Spirit and given meaning in the present and hope for the future that is to come. Let us live that way with meaning and hope in the telos of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in his name that I've said these things to you. Amen. Holy and gracious God, we praise you and give you thanks. You do not leave us to ourselves and you do not leave us alone. We thank you, Lord, that there is Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you have meaning and purpose and there we can have hope. Come and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Come and align us with your mission, with urgency and be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's continue our worship by standing together and offering singing and praise.